If you have a Bible, you may turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, the second gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark chapter 2. The title of this sermon is The Sabbath Was Made for Man. And I want to begin uh, reading at verse 23. Mark chapter 2 and end at verse 28. You'll see if you were here last week, this is a parallel passage. It's very similar to the Matthew passage in Matthew 12 that we looked at. We're going to focus on something slightly different this week. Verse 23 of Mark chapter 2. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Now, the Pharisees would be the religious leaders that were very antagonistic to almost everything Jesus did and said. They said, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here's an accusation of violating the fourth commandment. Pharisees believed uh, Jesus' disciples were violating the fourth commandment and by implication that Jesus advocated the violation of the fourth commandment. But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and he and those with him? Have you never read? That means, hey, biblical scholars, haven't you read the Bible? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. Now, if you fill in the gaps here from the Matthew account, you know what Jesus is doing. He's doing the same thing he did in Matthew. In Matthew, he cited two Old Testament incidents and then actually quoted Hosea 6. If you knew what this meant, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. Okay, so in the Matthew text uh, and in our passage, at least um, afterwards, there's healing going on in the Sabbath. Jesus is confronting uh, a Pharisaic excess. And what was that Pharisaic excess? I forgot the number of added laws to the fourth commandment in terms of its application. But during the silent age, between the Old Testament canon closing and the New Testament canon, there were the Pharisees added like four or five hundred, I forgot the count, laws to the law of God in order to really keep the Sabbath holy, okay? And it became very burdensome to people. So the Lord of glory incarnate is, is trying to rescind those burdens from the people of God, remove those burdens from the people of God that were added to the law of God by the would-be teachers of the law of God themselves. So he's correcting faulty understanding of the Old Testament. Now, the words we're going to concentrate on today are found in verses 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore... The Son of Man is also, or even, Lord 
of the Sabbath. Now, many years ago, I was driving not far from here with a friend of mine who happened to graduate from the same seminary that I graduated from, and, and we were talking about theology, and he gets to a point where he mentioned, I, I might have mentioned it, or he mentioned it, the, our confession of faith, because this is many, many years ago. And what happened was, he said, now, it, it, aren't you guys those like Sabbatarian kind of things, like the old Puritan stuff? And I said, well, you know, Jesus did say that the Sabbath was made for man. And he was driving. And he looked at me and said, where? And my first thought was, dude, go back to seminary. I said in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I think that's an indication of, of good, well-intended people not thinking canonically, not thinking about the whole Bible in order to understand the various parts of the Bible. I didn't yell at him, scream at him. I just suggested he go back and read. So the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So we've been considering a lot of things in this series, and now we're considering the fourth commandment, and in relation to Christians, especially um, uh, why we meet on the first day and then what it should look like. Sabbath, one day per week is given by God to be distinctly different. I think I made that distinction earlier. We don't give a day to God. God has given us all of our days, and one of them is to be distinctly different in the way we conduct ourselves than the others. The language of the fourth commandment itself connects the Sabbath day with God's own acts at creation. It also, the fourth commandment, the language of it, connects man's acts of labor to the six days of creation as well. So that labor becomes an institution for man instituted or ordained by God by virtue of his taking six days to, to, to create. Now, I've said this before. It didn't take God six days to create, right? Like, whew, I got a day one, I'm tired. Whew, day two, I'm bushed. God took six days to create. It's very important to get the difference there. Why did he take six days? Not for him, but for us. So the just as the six days of creation function as a pattern for man, so the seventh, the divine rest. Remember looking at Genesis 2. It's an, it's an odd text. Then God rested. And, you know, as creatures were going, well, he was tired. Wait a minute. Oops, he wasn't tired. The Lord our God does not grow weary. God sleeps. Then you better know his sleeping patterns because you can't address him in prayer if he does. God rested well, if creation in the space of six days was for us, then this divine rest, whatever it be, it is, it must be for us. It's not God growing tired, but it is God uh, expressing his lordship over his creation. The earth is a footstool. Heaven is my throne. The earth is a footstool 
And we looked at texts in the Old Testament that tend to connect temple building with God taking a posture of enthronement over it. Um, the creation is a temple. God's taking the uh, metaphor here, posture of enthronement over it, entering into divine providence. As a sign for man that he could, if he worked properly, enter into some creaturely rest that's better than his created status. So we're trying to deal now with Jesus and the Sabbath. And when you deal with Jesus and the Sabbath, instead of getting your feathers all ruffled and the hair on the on the backside of your neck, if you're a man, of course, women don't have hair in the backside of their neck, uh, standing up on end, you just look at this text and see what he says. And I think Mark chapter 2 is one of those texts that's helped me a lot. So let me stop rambling. If my wife was here, she'd be giving me signs. You're not doing well. It's 1020, and you're on page 1 of 11 pages. Oops. So hear the words again. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath, or so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So who came? what came first? Man came first then Sabbath. He does not say that the Sabbath was made for the Jews. Man came first, then 2,000 years later, or however long later, then the Sabbath came, but exclusively for the Jews. He seems to put making of man and making of Sabbath basically at the same time frame. This is why the Puritans and others would say, I don't know if the Puritans coined it this way, but somebody came up with the phrase, creation Ordinance. God ordains certain things by virtue of the fact that he's the creator and we're creatures in his image to be for man to conduct himself in during his time here on the earth as it is, whether it's in his pre-fall state or in its sinful state like us. And those would be three. Sabbath is one of them. Labor is another. And marriage is another. So we have here in these words of Jesus, the making of the Sabbath happened in the same time frame of the making of man, not the making of the nation of Israel. This is very important to get this. The Sabbath was made for the Jews, right? He doesn't say that. He seems to go back to creation itself. There's some other reasons to believe he's going back to creation. We'll get there in a minute. The Sabbath is not as old as the Jews. It is old as mankind, or at least one day younger, 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 younger. The Sabbath is as old as mankind, at least one day younger, younger, man. So he's drawing from creation a moral principle that is germane, I think, to mankind as a whole. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, let's note some things if you're taking notes. If you're not and just thinking along with me and listening, that's fine too. 
I actually personally prefer that during preaching. Have you ever read Lloyd-Jones on taking notes during sermons? If you like taking notes during sermons, don't read what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, during true preaching, there's no time to take notes. So first, let's think through this first. Notice that both man and the Sabbath are said to have been made. Obvious observation, right? Both man and Sabbath are said to have been made. I have the New King James translation here. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. Excuse me. The Sabbath was made for man and not man. And man was not made for the Sabbath. You see the implication. If the Sabbath was made, he doesn't use the verb in the second part of the verse, but he implies it. Sabbath was made. Man was made. So we have... Uh, both man and Sabbath are said to have been made, and some of you know this, the word used is ginomai, which is used elsewhere for that which came into being creation creatures. So man is a creature, Sabbath is a creature. And who is the creator of both? God. Same verb used in John 1.3, where it's translated made, and nothing was made except By him, it refers to the creation of all things through the word in John chapter 1, verse 3. So what Jesus is saying in Mark 2.27 is that in the past, both man and the Sabbath came into being, or they were made. You can read about that in Genesis 2. So basically, a, a, a dual creation of man and Sabbath is described by one verb, made, and I think very clearly this suggests that man and the Sabbath were made at the same approximate time. Now, when you read Genesis 2, 1 through 3, you can actually start before that, but it's very clear to me and to most people and even commentaries that our commentators that are dealing with this text, that Jesus is evoking, that means he's calling upon an ancient text, and he's utilizing what that text entails or means in a current situation. He doesn't quote Genesis 2, 1 through 3. He evokes it. He calls on it. Hey, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, come here. I'm going to use you in this situation. I'm going to correct something that's wrong. I think that becomes very important as we continue to think through this. Now, wouldn't it be clumsy uh, to separate the making of man and the making of the Sabbath by thousands of years? Because that's what some people want to do. However, whenever creation started, according to the Puritans, 6,224 years ago or whatever, they have an exact chronology. But let's say the Jews in covenant with Moses, came 2,000 years after creation. And man came 2,000 years before the Jews came into existence. Wouldn't it be awkward to interpret Jesus' words this way? The Sabbath was made 2,000 years after man was created, and not man for the Sabbath, man coming 2,000 years before the Sabbath. That would be like... Odd, clumsy, and I think unnecessary to do. We know that man 
uh, was created or he came into being according to the Genesis 1 and 2 account. Uh, and since we know that, I think, and many, many others do as well, that Christ would have us conclude that the Sabbath, as he refers to it here, was made at the same time as the making of man. That's a pretty simple observation, and uh, we're going to get some pushback in somebody who I think we need to listen to who has some pushback on it, and then I'll show you that I think he's wrong. But here, here's a second observation. Both Sabbath and man are singular. It's not men, or it's not Sabbaths and men. It's Sabbath and man. Both are singular and have an article, the, in the Greek text, the Sabbath and the man. You've got to be careful of making too much of the presence or absence of an article. An article, in this case, is the word the. It, it, it distinguishes a particular thing. Not a Sabbath, not a man, but the Sabbath and the man. You see what some people do with that. The Sabbath is that which God instituted by virtue of this divine rest. The man is Adam. But I think we can read it that way in one sense, but we have, if we're going to read it with the whole Bible, we go, yeah, but Adam was the representative of us all. So mankind in Adam, we might say. It's uh, an observation worth thinking through. The Sabbath, uh, he doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews or the Sabbaths, plural, uh, were made for the Jews. He said the Sabbath, singular, was made for the man, singular. Now, there's pushback to this, this creation-based Sabbath. And here's what one man says. If you want to know who it is, I'll tell you afterwards. It doesn't matter who it is. It, well, it does in one sense, but it doesn't in another sense. He says, the number of writers who reason thus is staggering. What does he mean by thus? He refers to those who take Mark 2.27 to mean that God established the seventh day for man and not man for the day, but then go on to see secondary support for a creation ordinance. Okay, so here's this scholar, very well known in our own day, still alive, who's published all over the place on various things, and he says the number of people who take it the way the Puritans do in our own day is staggering. And what they do is they, they say, therefore, the Sabbath must be a creation ordinance. He doesn't go in that direction, but it's interesting that he at least concedes a fact that the number of us commentators are staggering that go in this direction. Now, why does he use the term man? Because this is... In the literature, you know, people are wrestling with all this. The Sabbath was made for man. He doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. He said the Sabbath was made for man. Okay, there were two schools of Pharisees in the first century. There's what we can call Palestinian, or around the Holy Land, Pharisees. And there were Hellenistic Pharisees. That is, those who were influenced more by Greek culture and less... Uh, less, I guess, Jewish externally. In the 17th century, John Owen argued that some intertestamental Jews held the Sabbath to be a creational institution for all mankind. Okay, so this is back in the 17th century. 
Uh, people are still doing this, by the way, because it's just a fact of history. Two schools of thought among the Pharisees. One of them thought that the Sabbath was an institution for the entirety of the human race. But Jesus wasn't addressing those kinds of Pharisees. That was the Hellenistic Pharisees. That was the Greekized Pharisees. Those were the ones that were influenced by the world. They held to a creation-based ordinance of Sabbath. The godly, the orthodox, you know, the, the Palestinian Pharisees, they held that the Sabbath was exclusively a Jewish ordinance. It's ours. And these are the types of Pharisees that Jesus is dealing with. Now, according to one commentator, Palestinian Judaism regarded the Sabbath as a Mosaic ordinance for Israel alone. Now, this is just a fact of history, okay? And these are the guys Jesus is dealing with. And so the guys Jesus is dealing with don't believe that the Sabbath is an ordinance for man generically. They think it's an ordinance for man, in particular, Jewish men from the inauguration of the Old Covenant to whenever. So he's correcting that as well. By the way, if that's your view, you're with the Pharisees, the Palestinian Pharisees. It's a bad place to be, by the way. Now, extending the Sabbath to mankind in Mark 2. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus' words are a further correction of the faulty views of the Pharisees. Not only did they add to the word of God, thus assuming Jesus and his disciples violated Sabbath law as it then stood, they took away from it by viewing the Sabbath for ancient Israel alone. So this becomes a rebuke to the Pharisees on at least two grounds. One is, you guys... My, me and my disciples were not violating the law of the Sabbath as it then stood in God's book. And number two, you guys have restricted the blessing of a Sabbath day for man to only the Jews exclusively. You're wrong. It goes all the way back to creation, not just to Sinai. So he corrects the Pharisees for misunderstanding the Sabbath, but he also, in effect, rebukes their narrow-minded approach to it. He teaches us that the Sabbath is not unique to the Jews. God caused it to come into being when he caused Adam and all mankind through him to come into being for his glory and their good. So we could say this. According to Jesus, the Sabbath is as old as man, not merely as, as, old, as old as the Jews. If my wife was here and she could talk, she'd probably say, Stop lecturing. Okay, one of the reasons these kind of sermons get keep going and going and going is because I really want you to understand what, what are the real issues here? What have the great minds said about these things? And how are we to understand these things? And uh, I also assume that you're not dumb, you're not stupid. You want to know, so you, you, you gird up the loins of your mind. So here's my third uh, observation on this text. The Sabbath is said to have been made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Wow. I mean, write that one down, right? The Sabbath, this is very important though. The Sabbath is said to have been made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus says the Sabbath was made, here's an emphasis, an emphasis for 
man. Whatever it is, it's for us, not against us. It was not made for God. God does not need a one day in seven to replenish divine energy or something. We do. Now, we don't replenish ourselves with divine energy. Well, in one sense, we do. A grace, a created effects in us. We come and get our tanks filled, you know, on the Lord's day. It was made by God for our good. Also, man was not made for the Sabbath. Man existed first. Man's needs existed before the Sabbath came into existence. And the Sabbath came into existence to meet man's ultimate needs. To serve us, not us serving it. Fourth observation, we're moving along here. Fourth observation is this. Christ puts his stamp of messianic lordship on the Sabbath that was made at creation and made for man. Christ puts his messianic lordship, I'll explain this. He puts the, his, the stamp of messianic lordship on the Sabbath that was made at creation and made for man. Messianic lordship. What is that? Well, lordship would be he has sovereignty over, he has lordship, he has power over, okay? Uh, messianic, that means he is, he is the specially anointed servant of the Lord as promised in the Old Testament. So as the one promised, he has come in fulfillment now, and he's saying, look, my authority, boom, it's on the Sabbath. That was made for man uh, at creation. Now, if I'm there and I'm one of these Pharisees, I'm going, dude, the Sabbath's God's. You see what the implication of what Jesus says here? He's, this is a claim to deity as well. But here he is with lips and a body and a soul, very God, very man, claiming messianic lordship over the Sabbath that was made at creation and for man. And I think this, uh, uh, this uh, provides us with the expectation that the Sabbath will abide in some sense under his lordship and will take on characteristics appropriate to this lordship under what we call the, uh, the inaugurated, the days of the inaugurated new covenant. Uh, is the Son of Man Lord of the physical temple? We would say, yes, and he destroyed it in 70 AD, right? When the Son of Man rules between the two advents of our Savior, is there a temple that we could call God's? And the answer is, well, yes. Is it the same exact temple that Jesus destroyed? No. Does that mean that there's no more temple or concept of temple in the new covenant? No, it's transformed. If you remember back, I told you, the prophets told us there's a transformation coming to some of these old covenant uh, external uh, symbols and signs and shadows. Though the form changes, 
that which those pointed to, the substance doesn't change. How'd that come out of my mouth? That's not even in the notes. You know what I'm getting at, I think. Some of you do. I hope one of you is, at least. He's putting a stamp of messianic lordship on this thing. And so since the temple is transformed by Christ and his work, and it looks different this side of the resurrection, it's now his people, the church. The priesthood, by the way, is the priesthood undone, or did it serve its purpose and fulfillment by abrogation? Yes. Is it utterly undone? No. We're all priests. Temple, priests, sacrifices, I've done this before in this series, Sabbath as well is going to take on some sort of messianic characteristics. It's going to reflect this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ. It's going to reflect that that to which the rest pointed has come, but not in its fullness. A new creation has begun with the resurrection of Christ, but the new creation hasn't extended to the entirety of creation. Here's here's what somebody else says. Within such a framework, the fact that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath becomes the more significant, for the very concept of Sabbath begins to undergo transformation. He acknowledges this. Ah, he's Lord of the Sabbath. Some sort of transformation must be happening here. That Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is not only a messianic claim of grand proportions, but it raises the possibility of a future change or reinterpretation of the Sabbath in precisely the same way that his possessed superiority over the temple raises certain possibilities about ritual laws. No details of that nature are spelled out here, but the verse arouses expectations. I think that's a profound observation. He says, look, the verse is telling us, and he did this in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here the fulfillment of that to which the temple looked at, Christ, something greater than Solomon is here, something greater than Jonah. Jesus does that quite often, and he's pointing at himself. What he's saying, what this author says here, and if I told you who it was, you go, he didn't say that. He said it. What he's saying is the words of Christ in terms of the Sabbath are similar to the words of Christ in terms of the temple, and they lead us to expect some sort of transformation with these old covenant realities to fit the conditions of the new situation, the having come Messiah, the having been born of a woman, uh, born under the law, in order that he might redeem us. The transformation of those things comes with a transformer, our Lord Jesus Christ, capital, capital T. I think that's a, it's an astounding observation. Now, I can tell you that the man that made this observation doesn't go in the direction he ought to with that, because he basically argues that he does away with everything. And it's like, but it is an astute observation. Transformation, change, old things, transformed to fit new circumstances. You've heard that. And this isn't new. When Jesus uses this kind of language, dips into the Old Testament, and yet his words entail some sort of transformation, some sort of continuity and discontinuity at the same time, it's not new to our Lord. I tried to tell you, the prophets in the Old Testament 
prophesy the cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths. Remember that? That's where Paul got that triad of terms in Colossians 2.16 that a lot of Christians stumble over. That's all Jewish stuff. But the prophets also prophesy some sort of continuing Sabbath during the interadvental days of the New Testament. So I think what Jesus' words are suggesting to us are, yeah, the old thing has served its purpose, but, 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 but it still has a purpose. And that is, it, it can point to me, but I'm going to transform these things. And what that exactly looks like, I'm going to wait for my apostles to write the New Testament. They'll tell you. The expectation here is that there's going to be new revelation through Christ to explain the entailments of some of these massive statements that he makes, like this one. You, you guys know that when once, if we ever get to John uh, 14 through 16, Jesus promised what we call the New Testament. It's clear. He said, when I, when I leave you, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send the Spirit. He'll help you remember what I taught you. He'll teach you new things, and he'll tell you about the future. That's the New Testament. Anyway, fourth, Christ puts his stamp of messianic lordship on the Sabbath made at creation. Now, son of man, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Jesus used it more than anybody else, uh, identifying himself by that phrase, son of man. Where does that come from? It comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Just listen to these prophetic words. I kept looking. This is a night vision. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom as one which will not be destroyed. So the best way to take that night vision as God revealing through Daniel the days of the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who the nations will obey. The one whose message goes out to both Jew and to Greek, all the peoples of the world, okay? That's the best way to take that. Now listen to uh, somebody else. What the Lord is affirming is that the Sabbath has its place within the sphere of his messianic lordship and that he exercises lordship over the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for man since he is lord of the Sabbath. It is his to guard it against those distortions and perversions with which Phariseeism had surrounded it and by which it truly benefit, its truly beneficent purpose has been defeated. But he is also its Lord to guard and vindicate its permanent place within that messianic lordship, which he exercises over all things. He is Lord of the Sabbath too, and he is Lord of it not for the purpose of depriving men of that inestimable 
benefit which the Sabbath bestows, but for the purpose of bringing to the fullest realization on behalf of men that beneficent design for which the Sabbath was instituted. If the Sabbath was made for man, and if Jesus is the Son of Man to save man, surely the lordship which he exercises to that end is not to deprive man of that which was made for his good, but to seal to man that which the Sabbath institution involves. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. We dare not tamper with his authority, and we dare not misconstrue the intent of his words. That was a long quote, but it was juicy. It was so good I couldn't reduce it. It was John Murray, in case anybody of you, anybody is wondering. So it's clear from the text in Daniel, uh, from which the phrase "Son of Man" comes, that it refers to our Lord not only on the while on the earth. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He spoke that while on the earth. But the night vision was about the ascension, wasn't it? And the session of Christ now between the first and second comings. So it's a title appropriate, son of man, is a title appropriate for our Lord during his state of humiliation while he was ministering on the earth. He takes it to himself many, many times, like I said, more than others. But it's also a title appropriate for him once he has accomplished his work, once he has gone up to the ancient of days. By the way, that's one of the texts that causes people to violate the second commandment commandment and put a beard on God because he's ancient. Okay. But that phrase is appropriate, son of man is appropriate for the Lord now in heaven, right? So he is now continuing his lordship over the Sabbath that was initially given for man's benefit, distorted, messed up by the Pharisees, and cleaned of those Pharisaic adumbrations, additions, by our Lord with the expectation that our Lord, through the apostles, are going to help us, is going to help us understand what that means this side of his ascension. I think that's what the New Testament helps us with. So it's very clear uh, that when Jesus uses this phrase, he's, he's arguing that he governs the Sabbath during the whole interadvental period. Not just while he was on the earth, but he is son of man now in glory, executing divine sovereignty over the Sabbath, which was made for man so that we should view whatever Sabbath day God institutes for us, which I think is the first day, and we'll see that in a couple weeks, as for our, our benefit, our good. What a novel thing. God's goodness is seen in the giving of a gift of the first day of the week for us and for our salvation in terms of our sanctification. What a novel thing. God's good to his creatures. (laughs) If we're thinking pharisaically, we're thinking God just took a day from me. I got to give a day to God. No, God gave a day to us. I gotta, gotta, gotta. No, you get a. It's really, and the more you develop your thinking about this, uh, um, at least here's how it is for me. I haven't concluded, man, look how holy I am on Sundays. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do the other. For me, it's been just the opposite. I go, 
this, this, is, this requirement exposes me. Yeah, but pastor, you go to church every Sunday. I both get a and gotta. Do I use my time always as wisely as I ought to on the Lord's day? No. No, I don't. If you say, oh yeah, I do. You're a liar and a lightning strike might come through the roof. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath during the entirety of the age between his ascension into glory or his incarnation and his second coming. To do with it as he pleases. And since he didn't utterly uh, cast all concepts about temple into the trash bin of history, he transforms temple into his people, his church. So I'm going to argue, so Sabbath gets transformed to fit the, the Christian dispensation, as the Puritans were wont to say. The Christian dispensation. What they mean by that is the period of time primarily between the ascension of our Lord and the second coming of our Lord. So what Jesus is doing is this. Is he's taking a principle from grounded in creation, a creation ordinance, and he's saying, I'm Lord of it. Which, by the way, makes him Lord of labor and marriage, too. You remember in Matthew 19, by the way, what Jesus did? From the beginning, it's not been so. The Pharisees said, hey, can, can we divorce our wives for any reason whatsoever? Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. But I tell you, from the beginning, it was not so. So there's Jesus evoking the Genesis 1 and 2 account and saying there's something unique about the institution of marriage at creation prior to the fall that you guys need to take into consideration. Uh, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to remain silent. For, and then he goes into the order of creation, 1 Timothy chapter 2, you can read it in verses uh, 11 through 14 there. Jesus, in Matthew 12, Matthew 19, Paul, in 1 Timothy 2, evoke the creation. And this is why theologians call these creation ordinances, gender-based Role distinctives are based on our are based on creation. We share generically in human nature, but we have our unique instantiation, one called male and one called female, with distinct external differences, internal differences as well, and then roles based on that. Paul goes all the way back there. So there's another creation ordinance, gender-based role distinctions, marriage, and uh, and Jesus does the same thing here. So either Paul's following Jesus or Jesus is actually following Moses who did the same thing because when Moses is articulating the fourth commandment in its, uh, in its Exodus chapter 20 form, he goes back to creation for the basis of Sabbath in God's resting and the basis of labor in God's working. So Jesus is on good grounds or we should say the others are on good grounds because they do what the Lord uh, did as well. So with that, I think I need to stop at some point. Do I have another observation?
No, I'm going to deal uh, in the second service with a pushback on the creation-based uh, institution of the Sabbath and then draw some conclusions. But here's the first conclusion is this. If, this, if the fourth commandment is a part of what we call natural or moral law, um, it was never done away with by Christ. Don't look behind that curtain. Yeah, when you were a child, you never did anything like that. Fourth commandment, if it is a part of the moral law, law written on the heart, um, natural law, law based on creation, then we got to deal with it. And you can't be so short-sighted as to say, yeah, but there's those texts in the New Testament, like Colossians 2. I get it. We tried to deal with those already. Romans 14. I mentioned that passage. Galatians 4. I know. I've read the Bible. I've also tried to put those texts within the complex of the teaching of the entirety of Scripture. And when you do that, you say, okay, those texts, I get it. But they're, they're, it's talking about either those things back there in the Old Covenant that Christians now should not in, be imposing on their brethren. By the way, if you want to go have a celebration of the Feast of Trumpets, there's a big mega church in San Diego that's doing it this fall. I heard it on the radio. I'm going, really? Feast of Trumpets? Now, are they free to have some sort of, yeah, I guess, but... I, as a pastor, if we ever did anything like that, I wouldn't say you weren't at the Feast of Trumpets recitation as if it was a sin. And that's what they were doing. As if it's a sin, they were judging their brothers based on Old Covenant, temporary, uh, external things that were shadowy of the substance, which is Christ. So we have to, you know, once we go through the cross and resurrection redemptive historical car wash, we have to ask the question, what does that fourth commandment look like this side of it, right? That's what we're wrestling with. We can't conclude it's not there. That's overly simplistic. Go back to the drawing board. We have to conclude, ask, what does it look like? Same thing with the second commandment. We did that. Now, I've said over and over, um, Once we conclude what it should look like, none of us are going to go, been there, done that. Um, follow me. Because, you know, I've said many times, we're way worse than we realize. Way worse than we realize. And God is way better than we'll ever know. We, the finite can't contain the infinite. We'll never exhaust the infinite goodness of God. We'll behold it forever. We'll marvel in it. We'll love it. We'll praise him for it, but we won't say, aha, I got the goodness down. Next thing. Because God's goodness just is God. But in the meantime, we got to realize we're not very good at this, obeying the law of God. So well, I'm, I'm pretty good. Really. Let another man praise you and not your own lips. Oh, that's in the Old Testament. Okay, let a man boast about his sanctification 
and say things that just are not true. And it's okay because we're under the New Testament. You know, one of the signs of really wrestling with your own conscience and the law of God is that you're hard on yourself and easy on others. Not easy peasy and the nobody else sins, only I sin kind of thing. But instead of reading motives in others, I think a sign of maturity is realizing there are so many problems out there. I can't solve them all. But the biggest problem I got in my life is the dude's face that I shave. It's me. That's a healthy attitude. And it's only by grace that we come, we come to that, um, that position where we realize, you know what? The, the law of God, the requirements that God has stipulated for me, they're good and righteous and just. But I don't like take them and, and embrace them and, and constantly analyze all my thoughts and, and decisions and actions based on it. Sometimes I just knee-jerk do what everybody else is doing or say what everybody else is saying. And after the fact, maybe a little sense of guilt comes on me, but then I go, no, I don't want to be hyper-Puritan. I don't want to do that. And we justify our... Nobody's ever done this before, right? You know, watching certain movies that... You're into paying money to help people display fornication on a film. Do we think through that? Yeah, but during that part of the movie, I put the popcorn thing over my face. But yeah, but you paid him money. It's just weird. Just an example. I think all of us have fallen for that too much. But when you're really serious about this stuff, you end up just going, Lord, it's me again. Please forgive me, the sinner. And if you're a Christian, listen to the voice from the word of God. My child, you're forgiven. Get up. I'll give you help to obey me better. Not perfectly, because that's glory. But better, slowly but surely. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. It's a hard but not impossible situation or or issue to wrestle with and to come to some definitive conclusions upon. Grant us uh, wisdom to understand your word properly and to apply it better and better as we grow together. Help us to sing uh, in light of your word, gratefully and thankfully now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.